Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Today marks the final installment of the conversation between Pinchas Shear and I about food and the Bible. You probably know Professor Shear as the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures, a contributor to many magazine articles, and the author of several core classes offered by IBC. But today, he is a fellow scholar who loves to talk about food, whether in the Bible or not, ancient recipes or modern ones. We ended the conversation last week talking about an episode in Mark 7 that is often talked about in terms of Jesus negating all rules of clean and unclean food eating, when in reality, Jesus is talking less about what they are eating and more about what actions defile a person. This week, we move into the Greco-Roman context. Pinhas has done a lot of research in this area specifically related to food. So I asked about how a normal Roman family would eat or how they would feast. We will use this to set the table for more conversations about how Paul instructs the early Christians about eating. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Well, there's a... There's a common meal, like a family meal, and then there's the feast or formal meal, as we even call it. So, uh, number one, uh, the biggest difference that people don't realize is that men and women did not eat together. If Romans or Greeks had a festive meal or a special banquet, there would be no women invited there unless they were there to service men in some sort of way. A lot of times there'd be servants, they'd be serving food, uh, they'd be playing music, dancing, entertaining, and and a lot of times it would turn into an orgy of entertainment later on because meals were long, uh, drinking was heavy, and slaves were present uh, at those meals for that purpose alone. So there's a whole uh, entire category of women who are basically our escorts or courtesans and things like that. And so in, in the Greek society, in Roman society, that was absolutely normal and it was part of their world view that that was fine so of course jews did not eat that way so there's family meals and then there's big festive celebratory banquets and they're very different so families sometimes they would eat together laying down became a custom uh, on couches women and children often squatted did not lay down on those couches in the roman times women would begin to lay down because there was a lot lot more integration but in the greek hellenistic times that wasn't the case and so a lot of times men and women actually ate separately so it, i know it's weird for us to think but the husband and wife would not eat at the same table together that wouldn't happen in that society because their lives took them different places and a lot of times the husbands would be outside of the home doing things running businesses you know around and about and and women actually would never leave home 
they would stay in the in the in the insula and that would be it they just if they ever venture out they might be considered to be impious actually and so if they go in public they will never go without an escort and so somebody to protect them to guard them uh, to shield them sort of say from this world um so there there's that family meal and how people dine and then there's the the big party sort of say celebratory banquet and and like i said those were mostly male those were elaborate well depending on your means but even during festivals even common people made a big deal about it so there's a custom of reclining that we see in the gospels a lot of times so it says jesus reclined with his disciples for example a passover meal so reclining is a way uh and people ate people ate in this semicircular type arrangement kind of like a u-shape arrangement called the triclinium and so that was a very common mediterranean way of eating i'm not even sure how we got started but it spread all over the world and that became a normal way of eating uh and so they didn't really have tables like like we have in the western world big huge table with chairs arranged about it they more laid on couches and the little tables were brought next to them and they just kind of reached out to the little tables and took food from them and and that empty part of the u would be the place where people would bring in food and uh they would set a big huge um pot of wine <laughs> a big crater a big vessel of wine and in that time of course wine would be concentrated and it would be diluted with water and people would dip their cups in there and refill it and 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 it was a, it was a big party uh, lots of wine but wine was quite quite different in those times as well again so much in the food and recipes has transformed you know what people eat has changed if I start telling people some some of the things that people ate uh, you know you can we have ancient cookbooks we can look at them and some of those items are really weird uh really weird you know uh, Romans enjoyed dormice for example you know every time I read that it kind of you know freaks me out so <laughs> but uh, people ate a lot of fruits a lot of vegetables uh you know obviously meat uh fish you know Romans really popularized fish a lot I think uh Israel even Israelites have of um Jews have expanded their diet into fish during during Roman times curiously did not eat chicken uh, until much later chicken was not a Jewish dish <laughs> So, uh, and large animals were not really eaten as well so because obviously like you know bovines and things like that they, it takes a lot to raise them and slaughter them and it's a massive un undertaking so uh smaller animals um you know in the greco-roman world pigs were very common in the jewish world goats and sheep were very common as far as the animal food goes and things like that and all the different byproducts of course that come from them as well so um how people ate you know a typical average meal the you you're familiar with the Mediterranean triad right the oil the wine and some sort of a grain product an average meal would have had all three you could not live without that and then now add to that some other things that might come from what you're doing you know if you're a farmer you live in the grand society obviously you're going to have your own crops your own things and so and if you're by the seashore obviously you can you know um, get food from that area if you're next to the woods maybe you go out hunting and trap something catch something you know some birds or something or who knows 
so yeah meals were actually quite different but in the process of the the procedure of meal uh was also also different in many ways so uh one of the aspects that I, I keep coming back to is the social aspect of meals that's what a lot of times we don't understand when we come to um realization that Greek society Roman society were highly stratified you didn't just eat with anybody I mean this is it didn't happen a, a guy who is important would never just eat with anyone he would only eat with people who are his peers and to make yourself welcome in that company is not going to likely happen unless you're on that same level so some people may have heard of the uh sort of say the benefactor uh client relationship so the the idea of somebody of a higher status extending fellowship to somebody of a lower status but a lot of times they won't even eat together what what the person would do is they would send them food as a gift but they wouldn't actually invite them to their dining room table and and unless they were of the same status or you know and so one way is that people moved up in the society is is got into these types of relationships and that, that allowed them some level of mobility through the favors and relationships that they had the deals that they could make the arrangements that that they could uh come to so Roman society Greek Roman society was really stratified and so men and women didn't didn't eat together then people of different class and status did not eat together like the only reason you would eat together is because you're on the same level basically and we don't understand that uh foreigners outsiders slaves there there are classes in that society that we often fail to take into account when we read the Bible uh it's an ancient world there are you know whether you were a slave or free made a big difference if you were a freed slave a freedman as they call them is also makes a big difference being born free versus not being born free being a noble being a citizen being a non-citizen all of that made a big difference with who you could and could not eat with and then coming back to the idea of your clan your people not your people identity uh again eating with foreigners is always risky you don't really know who those people are you don't really understand their status and so how far are you willing to risk it how far are you willing to take it the idea of foreign food like I said after Babylonian captivity becomes a really touchy point so when we get into the New Testament and you have Jews who do not want to eat with non-Jews because actually they're socially different these are so their social status differences their identity status difference their different religions they're outsiders and you're not supposed to eat with outsiders anyway so that starts to plant it this actually brings us to Galatians chapter two, in which we get the record of events that happened prior at some point in time where Paul is in Antioch and Peter is there. And Paul gets really mad at Peter because Peter is eating with Gentiles until people of status from Jerusalem come to Antioch. And then Peter withdraws and, and rejects eating with Gentiles. And, and Paul is pretty upset about mm -hmm. that and he even goes on to say peter is not even acting in line with the truth of the gospel by mm -hmm. his actions so 
does that fit more into this socializing part that you are talking about instead of a food that is clean and unclean? Like, what is it that Paul is actually mad about? Well, I'm going to tell you that obviously it's not the ingredients, you know, right. because <laughs> they, they seem to be sharing meals just fine. Uh, so sometimes people kind of assume that if you're eating with Gentiles, you must be eating unclean food as if Gentiles are not capable of eating clean food. And, and yeah, and, and I could see how that could be a problem, but that's, that doesn't have to be assumed automatically just because you eat with somebody who is not a Jew, that, that their food is un, automatically unclean. So I don't think it's the menu, let's put it that way. Uh, but I do think it's the company. And I do think it's the social status of people. So there's something that happened uh, with Peter, of course, in, in Acts that changed everything. He received a revelation, a very clear revelation that God accepts Gentiles as they are. They don't have to convert. They don't, come, they don't have to become circumcised. They just, they're fine as they are. And, and he has an opportunity actually to eat with the host family there. Uh, in Acts 10. So he clearly understands the message. And so that seems to be something that he does and he practices in Antioch as well, until people come that don't share his views and he withdraws. So what I want you to realize is that uh, Peter gets criticized by Paul, but why he gets criticized, you know, for being hypocritical, perhaps, for not being consistent his practice, which, you know, Peter might have just been trying to accommodate his guests. His guests didn't probably share his his notions, his ideas, his beliefs. I mean, he had this amazing revelation that he came to, and, and that changed the way he was. But these other people, we don't even know who they are, from Jerusalem, from James, they probably didn't share that. And so he's trying to be proper host to them by not putting them in a situation in which they would feel uncomfortable by eating with someone they would not normally eat with. So he withdraws to kind of keep the company with them. And he gets criticized for that. But what I want you to realize is why he gets criticized. If you actually read the context in Galatians 2 from the very beginning of um, the chapter, in that section, Paul is trying to build his resume as the apostle who is really bold and he stands up to everyone, okay? He says, I went to Jerusalem, and they approved my gospel, and they didn't have a problem, and I spoke with uh, James, and I spoke with Cephas, I spoke to John, their pillars, but I stood up even to them. So he starts bolstering his case, like saying, look, I speak the truth no matter who's in front of me. And then, at that moment, he decides to quote this little story with him and Cephas, right? At that moment. So we have to understand the purpose of that story is not to for us to take away this idea that there was one way of belief, uh, which was according to Cephas, and another way of belief in life was according to Paul, that Paul was this Hellenistic Jew who did everything, whatever he wanted, however he wanted, uh, and Cephas was this, you know, conservative uh, Judean Jew who did not you know, want to eat with Gentiles or not yet. People have derived Pauline Christianity and Petrine Christianity from these verses. But the truth is, I think it's much simpler. I think Paul is just trying to establish his 
authority as the apostle. He says, look, I am an apostle just as much as they are. And whenever I see something wrong, I stand up to, I stand up to these guys. I put them in their place. And then he cites this little story only to illustrate that, hey, I stood up to the big guy, to Peter himself. So I really don't think it's about food. I really don't think it's it's really about him just taking an opportunity to build up his apostleship, to build up his authority, because the next things that he's going to say uh, are going to be very forceful in, in Galatians. So he he's getting ready to say something that's probably not going to be well accepted. So he needs to build up his case of, hey, I know what I'm talking about. Uh, you really should listen to me. Um, and and that's where that story falls. And so there's a it's a it's an interesting conversation because he talks about, you know, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from Gentiles. <laughs> I mean, the, most people who read that, you know, have to understand this is Paul speaking. Uh, you know, the guy who supposedly, you know, rejects everything Jewish. Uh, no, he's he's the other the other way around. Uh, yet he's standing up on this one issue that he believes that people are being treated unfairly. Uh, Gentiles get ostracized uh, by Peter in this particular situation, maybe for good reasons, you know, as far as Peter is concerned. But uh, socially speaking, that hurts uh, their standing. They feel less of, of a people all of a sudden. And so now they were accepted. Now they were drawn in and saying, hey, your brothers, we can eat together. And something changed, and all of a sudden you treat them differently. Just and, and so Paul's speech really is like, look at what you're doing to these people's dignity. They felt like you, they were on the same level. Brothers, right, socially. And all of a sudden now you're telling them, no, 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 I can't eat with you. Well, that means now all of a sudden our status has changed again. So you know what Galatians is all about? It's about changing your status. Because Gentiles in Galatia, what do they want to do? They want to get circumcised. Why? So they could be Jews. Why? So that they are not shafted to the side. That's the whole idea. So they're trying to improve their standing. They're trying to move up that status ladder. And what does Paul tell them? Don't. God has accepted you and you are about, you've reached that top stair. This is it. There's no going further. You think you're going to get circumcised is going to get you to the next stair? There isn't another stair. Because if God has accepted you, what else do you want? So he has a whole different message for them, but it is very much status related. And I think that's why the whole meal comes in, obviously, because we talked about people of different statuses did not eat with each other. And that's why it becomes such a big issue in the community of early Christ followers to eat with each other, to show that, hey, we are the same. On this level, we're the same. Yes, some of us are rich. Some of us are not. Some of us have fancy jewelry and nice clothes, and others don't. But when it comes to spiritual reality, we're the same. And that would be no different from Jews. Again, social statuses exist even in Israel, but every Israelite comes to temple, and every Israelite has to bring sacrifices, and they all follow the same exact law and the same rules, and God judges them all in the same way. So that's that idea of uh, sort of saying, spiritual community and relations between people uh in the sight of god versus you know sort of say their status and wealth and things like that so interesting thinking of the social context in the like even just body language the decisions that we make how it's communicating people's importance and not and how 
context matters, <laughs> the, the social context, the physical context, but then also, like you were saying, actually the context in the letter itself, how important we can't just like cherry pick and pull these verses out of nowhere and create a theology out of them because then we miss what's actually happening here. I mean, look, a lot of times Paul says it for, for a effect. He has a desired effect. He, it's not just what he says, it's, it's how he wants to be perceived, what impact he wants to make on his listeners. And at that point, he wants to build up his authority as the apostle because what he's going to say is going to be controversial and difficult to accept. So he builds his case. One final question I'd like to ask you about, again, given this Roman context, is the idea of food that has been sacrificed to idols. And Paul, if we look especially at 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't seem to care. He's like, idols are nothing. So it, it doesn't matter. There's only one God. However, if you're eating something that someone else has or thinks might be sacrificed, to this idol and they assume it's a god, just don't do it. So what what is happening in that context that Paul is drawing attention to? So for Paul, this is this is an interesting issue. So for Jews, of course, eating idol food is absolutely out of the question. And that's a that's something that has been settled long time ago. And of course in Jewish community, that matter has been worked out. But in uh among the disciples of Paul, obviously, he tells them to stay how they are in the status. In that he says, remain in the status in, your work, in which you were called. So he's not asking them to become Jews. He's not asking them to change their diet. He's not telling them that they have to, you know, somehow alter uh, their culture. There are some minor alterations they have to do, and they have to be very careful with the idea of idols because it is such a big part of. Uh, pagan culture, essentially, to eat at pagan temples, uh, eat food sacrificed to idols. To them, it's not a big deal. To Jews, it would be a big deal. And to some non-Jews who sort of say, take on these same moral ideas, it becomes a, an issue. Idolatry in any form becomes absolutely unacceptable, even if it's a passive idolatry by saying, well, I don't really worship idols. I just eat their food. You know, I, and if you go back to the idea of what we were talking about earlier, that eating with God in God's temple, what I eat, God eats, and what God eats, I eat, and I don't eat things that don't he doesn't eat and vice versa. Yep, exactly. Now yes. it makes, makes sense. Now, again, this is an organic way of how people basically grow up, and that's their thinking. It's ingrained. And now you have this new group of people, this new community who are having to step away from their ways and change all that. And they're having trouble with it. They don't see, some of them see a problem with it. Some of them don't see a problem with it. And this is where Paul has to be very delicate in how he has to, I mean, he has to straddle this fence where he's not trying them to, be, to become Jews. He says, I don't want you to do this, you know, but can you be conscious of how what you eat or don't eat actually affects other people? Because if you're eating food that come, comes from an altar of idols, we know that idols are nothing. They're, they're, they're no gods. They're nothing. So what does it matter if it comes from the altar of nothing or just from butcher's table? It doesn't in reality. But to a person who believes that those things are real, it matters. And therefore, he says, some of you are enlightened, some of you are not. 
be careful in what you do. And then he cites his own example. His own example is very simple. He says, if, if what I'm going to eat is going to offend my brother, I'm just not going to eat it at all. And, and that's, again, a very sort of, say, Jewish ethical way of behaving, is that if I'm going to do something that's going to cause my brother to stumble, and that's a big commandment in the Torah, causing someone else to stumble and bringing someone else to a point of sin, even to the point of hurting their conscience, uh, you know, it is considered a terrible deed. So he says, I'm not going to even go there. If this, if all I have to do is give up food or a particular variety of food to have this better, smoother relationship and God will be praised in the end, that's an easy thing to do. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to give it up. Not a big sacrifice. Uh, so, but to somebody else, it might be a huge sacrifice. So again, it comes to the ethics, the culture, the priorities, how do you value those things? Like, what is more valuable to you? Uh, and so to Paul, a person's relationship with God is very valuable. And so he's willing to make all sorts of sacrifices, as clearly he shows by his life. So again, uh, not necessarily a passage so much about food, but more about practicing your faith and applying it to, to the world of food now. Well, I love it. And I think next time we have this conversation, it needs to be around a table, a dinner table, instead of sure. with microphones and screens. <laughs> it would Absolutely. be so much more fun to just be eating and fellowshipping while talking about all of this stuff. And I love how you said at the beginning, food is everywhere in the Bible. It's like land. Land is everywhere in the Bible. And if we stop seeing it as just a practicality and actually start looking at the social context and economic context around it, it really becomes uh, a lot more complex and elaborate than we normally think that it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those permeating topics. It's, it's in everything. So I, I like studying food because to me, there's just all the different aspects of it. And the more I study it, the more I understand so many different nukes and crannies of the Bible, let's put it that way in, in ways. So it's, it's a vehicle for me, it's a vehicle for understanding humans and relationships and why we behave the way we do. And uh, besides the fact that, you know, I, I think it is an important social glue. Food as an important social glue. I couldn't agree more. If you enjoy conversations like this, then come join us at Israel Bible Center, where you will have access to many amazing courses and roundtable talks that all dig into the details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards IBC's Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thanks to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>